Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm your host, Kate Madigan with the Michigan Climate Action Network. Today, we're going to talk about the big news about the Line 5 oil pipeline. On November 13th, Governor Whitmer announced she was revoking the easement that gives Enbridge permission to operate Line 5 in the Straits of Mackinac, where it crosses the Great Lakes. This is a huge win for the Oil and Water Don't Mix Coalition and other organizations in Michigan, and for the tens of thousands of people who have worked to get this pipeline shut down for over seven years. For more background on Line 5, you can listen to to episode three of our podcast series with our interview with Bay Mills Tribal President Brian Newland, and episode six with our interview with Larry Bell from Bell's Brewery and Beth Wallace from the Great Lakes Business Network. Today, we have four leaders of the Oil and Water Don't Mix campaign to talk about this huge win. With us today, we have Sean McBrarity with Clean Water Action, who coordinates the Oil and Water Don't Mix campaign. Liz Kirkwood, Executive Director of Flow, or For Love of Water. Jim Lively with the Groundwork Center and the Great Lakes Business Network. And Mike Ripley, Environmental Coordinator with the Chippewa Ottawa Resource Authority, or CORA. Here's our interview. Thank you all so much for joining us on the podcast today. So today we're going to talk about the huge news when the governor announced she was revoking the easement and shutting down Line 5. We've all worked to shut down the pipeline for a really long time. Um, So what were your reactions when the governor made this announcement? (laughs) Sure. It it was... Um, it was a strange moment hearing exactly what she was going to do because I you know, expected that the DNR easement review was going to be pretty bad um, for Enbridge. Um, but I didn't really think, at least I wasn't prepared for the governor to go all the way with it in one day and uh, notice that she was revoking the easement with an actual end date. So um, I was surprised, um, and then also the the timing just caught me off guard. Uh, Friday is, um, you know, not usually the best press day for announcing things like that. Um, but uh, it, you know, it was just a wonderful moment um, of you know winning a campaign, you know, getting a victory on that level without um, really seeing any of the intermediary steps that I thought would be coming first. Liz, what about you? It was a really remarkable moment. And it was, it was kind of this cognitive dissonance. You know, I I think we had been waiting so long and we have been asking the state of Michigan to exercise their public trustee powers and defend the Great Lakes for seven years. I mean, we've, we've met with both of these administrations and when you know, and we we saw this this remarkable change in the Whitmer administration. Both Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nessel had campaigned on the singular promise of shutting down Line Five, which was so extraordinary for all of us, you know. And and for all of a sudden, just a random November thirteenth, you know, in twenty twenty after the major 2020 presidential election for the governor's office and the DNR to say, not only are we gonna issue this notice of violation, but we're also gonna sue you in Ingham County and we're gonna revoke this easement and we're gonna terminate it and shut down these lines. 
and we're giving 180 days. It was, it was just, mm-hmm. it, we, we've dreamt of this moment for many, many years. <laughs> and it was, um, it was a really sweet victory for us collectively as a campaign for all of us who've been working on this issue for so many years. And to think that we lifted and elevated this issue out of obscurity almost into a major public campaign and then actually activated the government to, to you know, be in the driver's seat to shut it down is, is so wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, we were all thrilled. I was thrilled and, and, uh, and very relieved because as, as, um, as everyone you know, said so eloquently and so well, you know, we fought for seven years. Um, it's, it's been a long slog, um, but so many people um, are, are behind this. So many people realize the importance of, of, of the, you know, the danger of this pipeline. So yes, we're, we're thrilled that, that uh, the governor took this step. Yeah, Jim, anything to add? Your reaction? Well, you know, kind of similar. We were all shocked, surprised. I mean, when you work for, as Liz said, seven years with one goal in mind, which was to bring the state of Michigan government to our side. Um, we knew we were fighting Enbridge, but we really wanted, we knew we needed the state of Michigan. That's the only way we're going to move forward. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I'll be honest, it's still sinking in a bit, the, the magnitude of yeah. it. The one thing that I think we pretty quickly moved to all of us was appreciation for each other, you know, for what a wonderful group has come together around this issue, you know, over seven years, the, the team has just grown and really been just phenomenal. And also real appreciation for Whitmer's leadership. I mean, you have to acknowledge that that was a gutsy move, gutsy call, and we need to, you know, the other thing we'll talk about is it ain't over. We yeah. got to back her up. And That's so, right. It ain't over. <laughs> yeah. But she, we do have her on our side. That was our goal. We did get that. So that was cool. Yeah. And I'll just add that, you know, having worked on this also myself for seven years, when we started, we really thought we didn't think it was going to take seven and a half years to get to this point. And so there were so many points along the way where there were like little steps. And so I, I think, yeah, I, I'm still pinching myself that this has actually happened, that actually steps are, have been taken to revoke the easement. Um, but yes, it's not over. And Sean, you mentioned the um, easement review that the DNR did. So can you talk about what happened that led to the governor's decision to revoke the easement? Uh, yeah, definitely. So um, you know, about 15 months ago when uh, Enbridge ceased having negotiations with Governor Whitmer and jumped straight into the courtroom. Um, Governor Whitmer, in response, ordered the Department of Natural Resources to do a full review of Enbridge's easement violations dating back to uh, the easement being granted in 1953. And um, I remember meeting with uh, Director Eichinger about two weeks after that, asking about the easement review. And he says, well, you know, unfortunately, I think it's going to be a matter of a few months, not a few weeks uh, before we get the easement review f- finished and finalized. Um, and little did we know that, uh, you know, COVID-19 was around the corner and um, so many other things. And then also it's, it very much seems like the DNR discovered 
so much more in the easement uh, review than they perhaps thought they would have um, since uh, Director Eichinger thought they might be finishing you know, on a pretty quick time frame. So, um, you know, the DNR easement review had been out there, uh, had been ongoing. And, um, you know, I think most people kind of thought that we'd see the governor take some steps towards shutting down line five once that easement review, um, you know, was out publicly. Um, but, you know, again, I think she's just set herself apart as the, um, you know, in their first two years, short term in office so far, but the uh, possibly the most environmental, uh, environmentally friendly governor we've ever had um, in Michigan already with, you know, combining her other actions around PFAS, her climate executive orders, um, and now shutting down line five. Um, but so yeah, that easement review really prompted the governor to shut down the pipeline. And it seems like they did a very thorough job, uh, you know, over 15 months of researching the easement and figuring out, um, you know, exactly which violations um, were the ones that are incurable that, uh, you know, justify the need to shut down the pipeline versus telling Enbridge they need to fix it or something. Yeah. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the easement, so this is the agreement that the state has with Enbridge from 1953 that allows Enbridge to operate the pipeline on the bottomlands of the Straits. And Flo did an analysis a few years ago that looked at what requirements are in the easement and several identified several um, violations. So it's been clear to a lot of us that Enbridge is violating this easement, putting our waters at risk. And so when the state did its own, I think that was like, as you're saying, Sean, that was just the, what they needed to say, this has to stop. So Liz, now this is moving to a legal battle between Enbridge and the state. Can you talk about the legal strategy the governor and the attorney general are, are taking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first, let me just also give a shout out to A.G. Nessel, who mm-hmm. led this, this yeah. fight. She filed the first lawsuit in Ingham County back on June 27th, 2019. This was about, I think, actually, this was the same day that the governor directed the DNR director to in- investigate the easement violations. And the case that the attorney general brought before um, brought was representing the people of Michigan against Enbridge. And the theory of her case was to, um, uh, there were three theories. One was based on public trust law, on common law, saying that there was not a public trust analysis conducted back in 1953 and to revoke the easement. Um, what, and I'll just briefly say what that means, which is when, because the state is the, the, um, fiduciary and protector of public navigable waters, their duty is to protect the paramount interests of the water and the uses of fishing, swimming, navigation, commerce in perpetuity for the benefit of the people. And that means if a private action, like an oil company's, operation of a pipeline is, you know, substantially likely to harm, impair, or pollute, then that activity cannot occur. And also, if there are feasible and prudent alternatives to that proposed action, the activity can't occur. 
So public trust was the first theory um, to revoke the easement. The second one was public nuisance, that having an oil pipeline in the Straits of Mackinac, which is the worst possible place for an oil spill, public nuisance. And then thirdly, under Michigan's uh, statute called Michigan Environmental Protection Act, um, that's also the codification of public trust law that enables attorney general citizens um, to, again, bring actions against private actors who are threatening public resources like our waters. So that action happened in um, June of 2019. The, the additional case that the governor and the uh, DNR brought is the companion case. And, and I say it's the other shoe that dropped, right? Because the DNR is the legal, uh, it has legal title over our public trust bottom lands. And they are essentially what I would say is the landlord of the easement. And now they, so they're the real party in interest. These two lawsuits actually have been um, consolidated as in Ingham County, and they are both before Judge Jamo. Um, the governor's case and DNR's case is very important because the theories are very um, precise. They, they first of all, also, the, the first theory is that we're revoking the easement because back in 1953, the public trust analysis was never conducted. The state of Michigan never looked to looked at the issue of environmental harm to the resource, and they never looked at feasible and prudent alternatives. And then the second theory is uh, one about termination, and that's based on these incurable easement violations that that uh, Sean just described. And I, I just wanted to go into it a little bit more detail. Um, the those incurable um, defects include a requirement that the Bechtel engineers identified back in 1953 that every 75 feet there would be support on the lake bed. But the problem, as we know, and we've witnessed over, um, especially over the last 20 years, is that the powerful currents are creating lake bed erosion so that you have large portions of the pipeline literally suspended and undulating and bending and moving in these currents. Enbridge's solution, have court, of course, has been using these braces that they call anchor supports that's creating a rigidity. And there are over 200 of these braces that were dis, you know, described as repair and maintenance, but actually it's a new engineering stru structure. The second um, incurable violation is the pipeline curvature. Um, there, it's, you know, imagine if you had a, a paperclip and, you know, it, it bends, but if you start, you know, you start fiddling with it and you start bending it back and forth, eventually that bending and that curvature will uh, cause it to break. Same kind of theory and same structural requirements are needed for this pipeline. And the yeah. last one is to be reasonably prudent person. Um, Enbridge is not being reasonable um, in, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and has increased the likelihood of ruptures, exposure, elevating this pipeline uh, and increasing the threat of anchor strikes, one that happened in April of 2018. And then an additional one um, 
we don't know the exact date when it happened, but it actually triggered a temporary restraining order this summer so that line five was shut down by a court order for the first time in a 67 year history. So right. it's um, pretty, pretty action packed. Yeah. That? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then briefly, you know, the, the governor gave Enbridge 180 days. And yes. so that brings us to, you know, May 12th at that point, they need to shut down line five. How likely is it that that's going to happen and, um, or will they be able to, to stop that or, um, push that death timeline back through legal action? Well, these are all the, the challenges of legal battles. You, you never know what's going to happen. And so I, I would, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to say, you know, May 13th, we, we have a new energy, uh, you know, line five is shut down. Um, um, we will, we'll have to see how fast this case moves. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Enbridge has not responded yet. Um, and, you know, it's very likely that they will bring federal claims um, <clears throat> to, you know, of preemption and, and other types of things. But remember, the state of Michigan has a very compelling case. They are the landlord and Enbridge has been a really bad tenant. And the, uh, that's what this is based on and what makes this, this pipeline battle unique is the location of a pipeline in public trust waters and bottomlands. Um, yeah. I think the, the ability for the government to demonstrate the capability to switch to alternative uh, propane sources in the UP will be especially important. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue to, um, to a question I have for Jim, which is, you know, line five also carries propane that gets delivered to the upper peninsula. And part of what our state has needed to do as part of this decision to shut down line five is to make sure that people who rely on propane will still have a reliable and affordable supply next winter to heat their homes. And I know you've been very engaged in the UP Energy Task Force over the past year. So will you talk about the findings of the task force and the plan to make sure there's um, uninterrupted heat yeah. for the UP? Yeah, thanks, Kate, because this has been really important. I mean, both oil and propane are what move through this pipeline. And it's important for folks to understand that Line 5, even the oil, is really not mostly supporting Michigan. It's... it's um, final destination is mostly Montreal and Quebec. And the and so people need to understand that decommissioning line five is not going to have a major impact on Michigan or even the, really the Midwest. But the propane issue in the UP has been really a, a fundamental argument that Enbridge has been trying to make of why we cannot afford to shut this pipeline down. And there are so many facts that have been distorted about that, um, that the UP Energy Task Force, that the governor appointed, has helped uncover, but they still haven't really been brought to light like they need to. Um, you know, one of those things is Line 5 has only been bringing propane to the UP for just over 20 years. Um, so the UP has been using propane for a long time and knew how to get it without Line 5. So that's an important fact. And then when you look at the actual amount of propane, the volume of product, we're talking about 15,000 households in the UP that actually get their propane from line five, according to Enbridge's numbers. 
which is a very small amount. It's like, you know, about a city the size of Muskegon. We have to think about how do we bring propane to those folks? And it's, it's not, you know, insignificant. Those people do rely on propane. So there needs to be a solution, but the solution has been in the past and will be in the future, mostly rail. There are rail lines that operate now that do bring propane in. We can bring more propane. The volume, the number of rail cars for that many households is about 500 rail cars a year. And if you stagger those out over, you know, how many a month, it's not a huge amount. The, the Department of Transportation is right now looking at where they could do rail sidecar, um, you know, yards across the UP so that you could bring more propane across the UP. There, the solutions um, have been identified and they're in the report. So it is, it is both rail and then there's also the solution of more storage. The UP right now doesn't do a lot of storage because the propane comes through the pipeline, but with a small amount of additional storage, you can bring that propane in by rail and store it in the summer when, and then use it in the winter. So the solutions again are there. One last thing though, and I wanna bring this up Kate because we're talking about resilience and climate. Um, there's also a real important opportunity in the UP to think about moving people off of propane because we kind of all know that's not the long-term solution. Just like we know that oil isn't here forever. Let's help people move off of propane and that's the, the beauty of the energy task force. And some of the work that I've been doing up there is helping to organize a clean energy conference to talk with people about how do we use this opportunity to actually skip using propane and move right into an electrical or you know, geothermal, but basically an electrical based heating system that is the future and help the UP maybe vault ahead and be a leader on those things. So, it, there is reason to be actually excited for what this could mean for the UP. And um, well, people up there, there's plenty of people that are interested in working on those solutions. Great. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought up the that work as well. There's a lot happening in UP right now around clean energy. That's really exciting. Um, and I'd love to cover that, that on another episode in more in more detail. So Mike, many of Michigan tribes, including the five tribes that make up Cora, have been leading in the opposition to Line 5. And a spill from Line 5 endangers tribal treaty rights to hunt and fish in the Great Lakes. So would you talk about Cora and explain these treaty rights? Absolutely, yes. Cora, the Chippewa Ottawa Resource Authority was formed by the five tribes. Um, those tribes are the Bay Mills Indian community the Grand Traverse Band of Chippewa and Ottawa Indians, the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians, the uh, Little Traverse Bay Bands of Ottawa Indians, and the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians. And Cora was formed to co-manage the fisheries in the 1836 treaty area. So in 1836, the ancestors of the tribes today signed that treaty that, um, that ceded lands so that Michigan could become a state in 1837. But they kept the, the rights to hunt and fish because that was how they survived. It was never easy to survive in Michigan. Fishing was so important to the people here. It was the fundamental way of, um, of making a living back then, as it is for many tribal families now. It's a, it's, continued for, for so many generations. And um, those same people are making a livelihood in a cultural 
way that they've always done. And um, it's an important part of Michigan's economy as well. Because um, I, I just want to point out that uh, the white fish that people eat in Michigan restaurants, that usually comes from tribal fishers. So, um, so not only is it important for the tribal economy, it's important for the Michigan economy as well. Right. And, and you know, what would happen if there were a, a rupture of line five? What would happen to the fisheries? It would be devastating because over 50% of the fish caught are in the area that's susceptible to an oil spill. And um, I always point out that, um, you know, the other huge oil spill that's been experienced in our lifetime was the Exxon Valdez spill in Alaska. That really affected the fisheries there and is still affecting the fisheries. That oil gets into the environment and it doesn't leave. It, you know, they say that they clean it up, but, but a lot of that oil just escapes or is buried in the sand. And over time, that still affects, even years after it affects the um, spawning of fish and, and the viability of, of fish fry to survive. And that's what we're still seeing in Alaska after all these years, over 30 years. So we don't want that to happen here. <laughs> yeah, yes, thank you. And also I wanna point out that some of the Koro tribes are also intervening in the tunnel proceedings because the tunnel, arguing that the tunnel also would violate these treaty rights. Absolutely. Yeah, Grand Traverse Band and uh, Bay Mills Indian Community are taking a lead on that. They're interveners in the MPSC um, hearing as, as is uh, Flo and, and I believe your group is as well. So um, yeah, taking a big lead in that because, um, you know, <clears throat> we talk about the, the Straits of Mackinac, but that pipeline continues along Lake Michigan, very close to Lake Michigan in a lot of tributaries. And, and a lot of those areas are just as important um, for, for fish spawning and for tribal fishing in those areas. So it's not just the straits, it's, it's the whole pipeline that really needs to go. It's dangerous, it's, it's uh, past its due date. And uh, you know we really applaud uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Whitmer for um, revoking the easement. Um, we've all fought so hard for that and, and we're very proud that she's taken this step. I wanted to ask, you know, of course, Enbridge, you know, there's the existing pipeline that the governor has now taken action to shut down. There's also Enbridge is now seeking permits to build an oil tunnel to replace Line 5 in the Straits. Many of our groups are intervening in the permitting process that Enbridge is going through right now with the Michigan Public Service Commission and Eagle and the Army Corps of Engineers. Will you talk about what Oil and Water Don't Mix Coalition is doing to oppose the tunnel? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we've done um, a lot collectively as oil and water don't mix to oppose the tunnel um, from sort of the very inception of uh, the tunnel plan during the um, uh, during the pipeline safety advisory board process that Governor Snyder moved through. Um, you know, the tunnel has been a plan that we've been uh, concerned about uh, and um, very much in opposition to. And as Enbridge's uh, permit applications started rolling in, 
uh, you know, we've, it's been a really good group effort with, um, I know, uh, Liz and everybody at flow and, uh, Jim at groundwork and all sorts of, um, other folks have put in a lot of work, uh, opposing the tunnel. The legal analysis from flow has been wonderful. Um, with oil and water don't mix, we, uh, also, you know, worked with a couple experts, a geologist and a hydrogeologist and, um, also a NIPTES permit expert, um, and we were able to identify a lot of the flaws in Enbridge's permit uh, requests. And so some of them are pretty big glaring errors. And basically what the pattern showed us is that Enbridge is already cutting corners um, on this tunnel and they haven't even put a shovel in the ground yet. Um, now, back in uh, 2017, um, they did an analysis of what the tunnel project could prospectively look like. And they did a risks analysis <clears throat> for the tunnel at that point. Um, the problem is they did the risk analysis around a tunnel design that was entirely filled with concrete and grout. Um, so there was no open space in the tunnel. It was the pipeline and then filling the rest of the tunnel with concrete and grout. Um, the design that Enbridge has now is not filled with concrete and grout, which means it's susceptible to groundwater seeping in. It's uh, susceptible from lake water uh, being caught in there. Uh, the way they've designed it makes the lowest point at the tunnel in the middle of the straits. So when you get flooding in the tunnel, which is not an if, it's a when, um, you're going to have to pump water out from the very center, uh, which makes it a lot more difficult and a lot more um, hazardous for any workers who would have to be down there. Um, Enbridge also hasn't done their homework on the design of the tunnel. The industry standards are that they should have drilled uh, boreholes to do geological research every 50 to 200 feet. Um, instead, they drilled boreholes about every 950 feet through the middle of the straits. Um, and that's critical because that means they don't actually understand the geology they're going to be digging through. And um, you know, one of the largest industrial accidents in Michigan history was back in 1971 when they were digging a water intake tunnel under Lake Huron and didn't really understand the geology that they would be encountering, much like this project. Uh, and uh, the workers hit a pocket of methane um, and with hitting the pocket of methane and creating a spark, there was a big explosion that killed 22 people inside that tunnel. Um, they found trace elements of methane in, um, in uh, the few drilling samples that Enbridge did do. So we know that that's present. We know that just like they have with safety of the current pipeline and reliability of um, you know, any energy they bring to the UP, they've cut corners here. Um, so they've cut a lot of corners in the permitting process. We've um, you know, had thousands of uh, comments submitted to uh, Eagle and we should be hearing um, initial, um, uh, initial results from Eagle's permit process in the next few weeks here. Um, Army Corps of Engineers, we've been engaging and there's um, a really good opportunity for public comment coming up um, in early December. And there's public comment at Army Corps open until mid-December, till December 15th, I think. Um, and then uh, the other permitting process in this is the Michigan Public Service Commission. And um, Oil and Water Don't Mix has been uh, soliciting public comments from folks to the Public Service Commission as well. And um, I'm sure that uh, Liz um, would be more qualified and Kate actually, if you're both um, 
involved in the contested case, which oil and water don't mix is playing more of a support role um, with the MPSC. We're not actually a party to the contested case, um, but that's moving forward as well. Long story short, as long as Enbridge is not um, super successful in delaying uh, things legally on the existing pipeline, we're likely to have the existing pipeline shut down well before the Public Service Commission even makes a determination on um, whether or not they are going to approve the tunnel. Uh, so there's a lot going on with the tunnel, a lot yeah. of good ways for people to engage still. And this is like the fourth quarter of shutting down the pipeline is making sure this tunnel never sees the light of day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also want to ask you about, you know, one of the most compelling arguments against the tunnel and compelling evidence is that it would re it would disrupt or it could potentially um, building the tunnel could disrupt recently discovered evidence of archaeological artifacts on the bottomlands. And I wanted to see, Mike, if you would explain what has been reported in the news about about these about this finding. Yes, well, all of us knew that um, that something like this was would probably be found in this area. Uh, there are so many cultural sites, um, and and uh, President Newland from Bay Mills Indian Community said it so so well that this is a cultural landscape in the in the Straits of Mackinac for thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years, even before the lakes were as we see them today, people were living in this area, making a living. Um, after the uh, glaciers were here, um, this, this area was inhabited and uh, there's a continual um, cultural footprint and a cultural landscape in, in the Straits of Mackinac. So it's not surprising that uh, these archeological finds were, um, were found in this area. There are many others. And I found it so remarkable that it was a team of volunteers, many of them tribal women who discovered these artifacts, this evidence while doing their own surveying of the bottomlands. Yes, it really shows the, the passion of people and especially in Anishinaabe, women whose uh, traditional role is to care for the water. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's very um, appropriate that, um, you know, that women are involved in, and that they were so passionate about pursuing this, um, this study. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, Liz, to talk about what Sean mentioned toward the end of his comment there that, you know, if the existing line five is shut down, um, how does that impact the decision to build a tunnel? I know there are connections there. I've seen you uh, quoted in news stories about that. Well, um, there's so much to say. First off, I just want to give a huge shout out to Sean and David and Oil and Water Don't Mix for all of the incredible work galvanizing and activating citizens to participate in these very important public hearings and comment periods related to the regulatory state and federal processes that Enbridge is using to, to build this tunnel. Um, just as a little bit of a background to get to your question, Kate, um, uh, back in just before, uh, two years ago, during the lame duck session, as Governor Snyder was leaving in 2018, 
he and the legislators worked very closely with Enbridge to mastermind the tunnel law and the tunnel agreements and connected the, uh, the permission and authorization to use Great Lakes Public Trust bottomlands to build this tunnel for a private oil company for Enbridge and at the same time allow Enbridge to continue operating its dangerous Line 5 pipelines in the open waters of the Great Lakes. The, and, and I'm sorry, I didn't mention this earlier. One of the other key pieces of the litigation is to sever um, Enbridge's ability to, to operate Line 5 because what the 2018 tunnel agreement with the state of Michigan and the law did was allow um, the ongoing operations um, even and, and essentially kind of cure them of any um, violations. Um, that's this is what we call the backroom deal between Snyder. Yeah, yeah, the sweetheart and deal. Yeah. Right. And one other thing I wanted to mention, Sean, and you guys unearthed this is um, back in 2018, they talked about the diameter of the tunnel being 10 feet, but now the diameter is 20 feet. And so I don't, I don't know how much it costs to build a tunnel, a mega infrastructure project under 20% of the world's fresh surface water. Okay. I mean, that's what we're talking about. This is, this is like the big dig, right? Under our Great Lakes. Um, they, back in 2010, they said it was going to be $500 million. I mean, don't you think if you double the size, it might be a billion? I, I don't know why the media never picks up on that, but I, to me, it's this, in, where, where is the pushback from media asking Enbridge, how much is this really going to cost? Um, so Enbridge has done a masterful job diverting public attention. For the past two years, we've been focusing on a tunnel. But what we're forgetting is that every single day, this pipeline continues to pump 23 million gallons of oil through the heart of the Great Lakes. The, the implications of this lawsuit, I mean, it's, we don't know. Enbridge is going to continue to proceed with the tunnel uh, permitting procedures as we know. Eagle has made statements saying that the new litigation to stop the, op the current operations does not impact their decision-making on the tunnel. Um, I, I, think, I think it raises a lot of questions. Right now, Enbridge has looked at two options. Here are the two alternatives. One, continue to operate under the, um, you know, using the 1953 easement, current operations, or build the tunnel. Those are the two alternatives. If all of a sudden we don't have the current line five operating because it's been shut down by court order and permanently uh, decommissioned, what, what are the options that Eagle, MPSC, and Army Corps are going to examine? What about no pipeline? <laughs> yeah. And that is that is a very different analysis because as you know, in all of the state and the federal permitting procedures for the tunnel, each of the agencies must look at feasible and prudent alternatives. 
And without the existing pipeline operating, it really raises core fundamental questions. Is there even a public need for this pipeline? Mm -hmm. It also puts tremendous pressure on Enbridge from a financial perspective. Um, uh, today, I was just going to click over here and look on, um, there's, the, it says, uh, and this is from Oil and Gas 360. Uh, maybe you can add this to your, the, to the podcast as a link. It says, will Enbridge stock really go bankrupt? I mean, this is, and this is dated today. Uh, you know, they, this is a company that is really over leveraging and um, mm -hmm. they have uh, 20%, they, they transport 20% of North America's crude oil. Um, and, you know, they, they have an incredible, you know, it's a $30 billion annual revenue, but the operating costs for these pot for, for a pipeline is, is very expensive. And let's not forget that this entire pipeline is 67 years old. It will have to be completely replaced um, yeah. under this whole scenario of operating a pipeline for 99 years in the yeah. future. And I want to mention that a couple of years ago, under the former Governor Snyder administration, there was an analysis done, an independent analysis done, looking at alternatives and found that shutting down line five and not replacing it was a viable alternative. And it even, if you look at the jobs numbers they crunched, there were more jobs with that alternative than even building a tunnel, different kinds of jobs. But I think those things are really important to know that we can shut down this oil pipeline and not replace it and everything will be fine. Not even to mention the need to transition off of the fossil fuels that it's carrying. And on the topic of the tunnel, I just want to mention that the Michigan Climate Action Network is partnering with the Environmental Law and Policy Center and is intervening in the tunnel case, as Sean mentioned. And we're in particular raising climate concerns because, you know, this pipeline would, building an oil tunnel, building new oil infrastructure would extend the life of this pipeline. And so there's no doubt that it would exacerbate climate change and the impacts we're already seeing. And so we're arguing that climate impacts must be considered as part of looking at the environmental impacts of building a new oil pipeline, especially because climate change is among the biggest environmental threats we face. So I just wanted to make sure to mention that in the conversation mm -hmm. about this tunnel. And we're yeah. right in the middle of that. We have a hearing coming up in December. Um, so a lot going on here. Yeah. Thank you for, for leading on that work. And, um, Flow as well has inter intervened in those proceedings um, to complement and, of course, accentuate all of the climate change impacts, um, focusing on how the energy market has absolutely transformed. Think about just in this year alone, in April of 2020, it was negative $39 a barrel for oil. That is something to you know remember uh, and and we're seeing this incredible divestment from the um, uh, you know the tar sands from major um, from all the the major uh, oil and gas producers and and in addition um, you know the reason that we intervened was because the 2018 tunnel, 
deal and law was a wholesale giveaway of our public trust lands mm -hmm. and waters. And the state of Michigan, again, never properly conducted a public trust analysis to give away those lands. Um, and you know the DNR improperly assigned and allowed Enbridge to use those lands, um, as well as, um, um, oh, I was gonna say something else. Anyway, um, it, it's, you know, that, that continued failure of the state of Michigan. Oh, I know what I was gonna say is that the state of Michigan also never consulted with the tribes as part of that process, just like they failed to do that in 1953. And so I just wanted to mention the incredibly important role of our tribal partners who have the 1836 um, uh, Treaty of Washington uh, um, rights to the fishing, hunting, gathering in the Straits of Mackinac. Thanks for raising that, Liz. And we're going to have, we weren't able to get Mike Ripley with the Cora Tribes on right now. We're going to add him in another interview to, to this conversation because that's a really important voice to add to this. Absolutely. And so, you know, I think we all realize, or I think it's clear that the governor is doing the right thing on this, but it's not a political easy decision for her to make. And she's getting some pushback. And um, so Jim, and I think, and Sean, I'd also like your thoughts on what we talk about the pushback that she's getting and, and what this means. Yeah. Thanks, Kate, because you're right. I mean, this is a huge thing that we're talking about here. We got to remind ourselves, no one has ever shut down an oil pipeline. And here we have the governor of Michigan stepping forward to be the first person. And remember, she's two years away from an election. So while, while yes, we're moving into the courts and Liz is doing a great job of helping us understand the legal cases that are being made, it, these are still elected officials that need to put their muscle behind this. And elected officials get their courage and their backbone from the people. And we know that. So we need to, you know, we built this seven-year campaign to get her to a place where she had the courage to take the action she took. But we need to continue to support her and the attorney general um, to, to provide that political support that's so important. One of the things, you know, so you and I, Kate, we've all been a part of oil and water don't make sense the beginning. Um, one of the things that, that Groundwork was um, happy to be able to do with the National Wildlife Federation is bring some business voices into the discussion as well. Oil and Water Don't Mix is such a solid coalition of environmental groups, but we were seeing the media sometimes describing this as, you know, business versus environment rather than these are Michigan's Great Lakes and all of us depend on these Great Lakes. And so we have business leaders now that are speaking out um, in support with the same argument as Oil and Water Don't Mix. Um, and we need them. In fact, some of those leaders just met with Governor Whitmer last week um, to thank her for her work. The, what we need to continue to do now going forward, all of us collectively, is elevate this issue, provide her the support, elevate the national significance of this issue. You know, as we see a new presidential administration moving in, we need to be talking about what this means for climate, as you just said, you know, and elevating the issue nationally. This is a big deal. We can actually begin to shut down oil pipelines and the ones we should shut down first are the absolute riskiest ones that are in the fresh water of the great lakes so um it is hugely important that we keep up the political you know public grassroots support for for um 
the governor and the attorney general. Great. Thanks, Jim. And Sean, do you have do you have thoughts to add about kind of this political decision and also ways that people can take action right now? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I know that, um, so first of all, you know, this move uh, by Governor Whitmer did take a lot of political courage. Um, however, I, I really think, uh, you know, this is going to be a boon for her with voters. Um, we know that people in Michigan, in poll after poll, value the Great Lakes, um, are concerned about the possibility of an oil spill in the Great Lakes. And um, I mean, frankly, how rare is it um, in a climate of, um, you know, in some cases, politicians who tell outright lies and falsehoods all day long, um, a lot of others who are duplicitous and talk out of both sides of their mouth and sort of see which way the political wind goes and go that way. How rare is it to have um, a governor who's willing to stand up against the wealthiest, and most powerful industry in the world um, for the people who she represents? Um, you know, and I think that's going to be something for her to run on. It's definitely going to energize her base um, after we get through next winter uh, in the Upper Peninsula without Line 5 and we see that nobody has frozen to death and the world hasn't stopped and planes are still taking off from Detroit airport. Um, all of the things that Enbridge has been lying about for all these years is going to come to light as things that aren't true. Um, and I think that Governor Whitmer's popularity is only going to increase uh, based off the fact that just like she has um, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, she's putting uh, the people and the public resources of the state of Michigan first. Uh, and you know, I really think people are going to see that. And uh, by the time the next election rolls around, I think this is going to be a big win uh, for our governor. Um, as far as what people can do to take action, um, almost missed the second part there. Um, but uh, for, what, for what, pe what people can do to take action next is uh, if you go to really any of the websites of the organizations on this show have um, wonderful Line 5 resources up there. I tell you, um, I know for sure that on uh, Oil and Water Don't Mix, we have a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers comment action, and you can go to oilandwaterdontmix.org um, and take the action to the Army Corps of Engineers asking them not to approve the tunnel. Um, another great thing you can do um, is to call the governor's office or write an email to the governor's office and thank her for taking the stand. Um, you know, our governor really gets um, beat up a lot on uh, the national media with uh, the president in some cases um, from, uh, you know, armed radicals within our state trying to kidnap her. She needs to know that she's got a lot of people in her corner. And when she makes a big bold decision like this, uh, you know, I think it's important that we reach out and let her know that she has that that she has our support. Um, so that's something else folks can do. And then really just staying involved and engaged on this issue. There's uh, throughout the course of our work on line five, um, you know, there's been a million things really that come up at the last minute or that we don't know are going to be a big deal until we're right there. Um, and what's been able to really make this issue ring through has been the hundreds of people who show up when we need them to, when there's a major event happening, whether it's to give public comment or, um, you know, one of my favorite examples really was in the lame duck period of 2018, um, when we didn't find out that the tunnel bill was coming until about two weeks before 
um, they actually ran it in the state house and we were able at the spur of the moment uh, to get over 200 people from across the state to show up in Lansing and go talk to their state representatives. Hopefully we'll be able to gather again someday um, and uh, you know, in the next few months here. And uh, if we need to be able to do more in-person events like that, um, but just staying engaged and involved on this and taking action when you can. Uh, this hasn't been a one fell swoop sort of a campaign. This has been the result of hundreds of thousands of people across Michigan and across the country uh, standing up and saying that our Great Lakes and addressing climate change are more important than Enbridge's profits. Well said, Sean. And I just want to add, if you want, if folks want to send an email thanking the governor for this courageous action, you can go to the Michigan Climate Action Network website too. I just want to thank the governor also, because this is a legacy defining moment for her. This is this parallels and, and um, bolsters her commitment to climate change, to protecting the Great Lakes state, to protecting our most treasured and value, valued uh, fresh surface water here on the planet. And it's, it's putting people before profit. It's, it is leading with courage. It's, it, is, um, it is doing what true servant leadership um, embodies. And I, I just am, I'm just so extremely proud of Michigan for doing the right thing because mm -hmm. we know that um, we can't drink oil and this is, this is all the water that we will ever have. Um, and so um, by, by taking this affirmative action and saying, no more. Enough is enough. That's, that is where we are. And it, it depends on people like you who, who listen, who follow, who stay informed and continue to engage. And remember, never, ever giving up. This is, this is not a moment to, to, to just stand by the side. I know you're tired. I know this pandemic has you know, wreaked havoc on everybody's lives. And I think especially of our children, but you're doing this because of your children and because of the future. And um, that's, that is what gets me up every morning and um, fires me up to be with awesome people like you to do good things. Thanks, Liz. And yeah, I think it's, it's hard to overstate how huge this win is and I think it's really good to keep yeah. remembering that this is enormous and it took tens of thousands of people across, across Michigan to make this happen and a really strong coalition of so many organizations. And so now we just need to bring it across the finish line. I think Sean, <laughs> you said it was the fourth quarter. We just got we got a, a little bit more and um, yeah, it's really exciting where we're at. Any last words? Well, I just want to reiterate that um, it's this area is so important to the tribes for their economy and their culture. Um, it's an existential threat, the, the threat of an oil spill in our areas. It's something it's unconscionable that we would allow this pipeline to continue um, endangering something that's so important for the native people and so important for the state of Michigan, for all of us.
because water is life. Go big Gretch. That's right. <laughs> yep. That's the yeah. right. Oh, I, I know. We need somebody to write a song. We need we need some some creativity here. Yeah. Song and songs and art to really mark this mark this um anthem. moment yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> well thank you all for joining us today and yeah. it's it's really just a pleasure to get to work with all of you um so thanks for being on the podcast thanks, and thanks kate. for all you do yeah thanks very much kate and thanks yeah. for all of your work too yep, it's Absolutely. nice to celebrate a little bit isn't it it is <laughs> it's great to right be on. with you all all right thanks Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. You can find more episodes of the Speaking of Resilience podcast on our website, groundworkcenter.org podcast, and on all major podcast platforms. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen in. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps other listeners find the Speaking of Resilience podcast. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Miriam Owsley, hosted by Kate Madigan.